Well, welcome to another episode of On the Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And today I'm delighted to be joined by an old buddy of mine, Carl Siegling from Cadence Capital. You may know the stock code CDM. Now, Carl established Cadence Asset Management back in 2003. So he's been around a fair while and listed Cadence Capital in December 2006. So that's what? Uh, that's 15 years ago. That's pretty impressive. Carl's been around in financial services for 25 years, worked for Morgan, Deutsche Morgan, Grenfell, now Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, and he's currently the portfolio manager and chairman of Cadence Capital, and they manage around $450 million. and it's a listed investment company. CDM is the stock code on the SX. So welcome, Carl. Really delighted to have you on the show. Thanks, Henry, and it's great to be here. Well, just before we kick off, as we all know and we always do this, uh, the disclaimer is this is general advice only, so please do your own research, contact your own financial advisor regarding any of the thoughts, ideas, or insights that Carl and I talk about on this podcast. But uh, it's great to have you on the show, Carl. We've been trying to do this for a little while. I know that uh, you're a hard man to get hold of. You're a very busy man to get hold of. You had a great year in the fund. Tell us about CDM, Cadence Capital, and what the fund, well, the LIC at least, let's start with that one, what it does, how it does it, and what what about its investment philosophy? Yeah, okay. So, so Henry, going back to the beginning of all of this, when I, when, we, when I set the fund up, you know, I also, pretty traditional, came through the stockbroking industry, learned how to do things. I guess the untraditional thing, and I worked in research, equities research. I guess the thing that's not so normal is before I did that, I was a trader, and I traded currencies at night for Deutsche Morgan Grenfell. And so those two things were very different. One was you sat at night between the bid and the offer and you had to make money. And you really had very little access to fundamental information. You know, it was just the movement of markets and momentum and flow and trying to be in that flow that was how you actually made money. And then when we moved into equities research, well, of course, it was deeply fundamental. And I remember I used to sit there and take all the analysts' recommendations, buy, sell, hold. There used to be pink pages inside the Deutsche Morgan Grenfell document and blue pages, I think, for the small caps. And I'd go, okay, well, they put a buy on it there and a sell on it there and a hold on it there. And I went through it all and did it all. And I went, well, okay, these guys are getting about 48% of their calls right and 52% wrong. And I was horrified at that. And then actually now I'm not so horrified by that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) If you can get 52% right and 48% wrong and you do it right, you can actually make a really good return. And so then I, and I was started investing my own money back then. I was always interested in, in buying and selling equities myself. And so then, you know, step forward, I'd finished my MBA, I'd worked for a few uh, organizations and I wanted to do it on my own and I wanted to do it with my own money. So that was the background to it all. So I started it all off. I put money into an unlisted vehicle and then two other investors put money in as well. And um, I had started a little pot of money and I'd grown it tenfold. And that's how these other two investors got involved. They Mm. saw me grow it tenfold. And so I started. And then all of a sudden, I was up and running with $3 million of funds under management. (laughs) And I was going along and we grew that and that was really good. And back then, licks were pretty new. It was a pretty Mm. new concept. And I went to list one and I couldn't raise the minimum, which was $16 million. So right. like you said before, I started in 2003, but we didn't get that vehicle listed till 2006 because we had to run it unlisted for two and a half years. Then right. listed it. And really, so so what, what I put together there as a philosophy was here I am risking my own money. How do I risk that money? 
I don't take big concentrated positions initially. I take 1% positions and I scale into them. And then I add to them as they're going well. And then when they roll over, I scale out of them a third, a third, a third. Very much that scaling in and scaling mm-hmm. out, that flow. That's why we're called cadence. You know, you the use of everything. So everything has its day. Something goes up for a long time and then down for a long time. The idea that things, that, that they're always good or always bad, that's not really a philosophy within the company. And, and you know, when we get on to talking about some positions, I, I can bring that right down to current day positions which have been out of favour and are coming back into favour or positions that are massively in favour, you know, a year ago that are coming out of favour now. I was just reflecting the other day, I was saying to someone, you know, when I first moved to Australia, interest rates were 17.5% short end and 21% long end. Those are the days, weren't they? You said long end, 21% short end. (laughs) And the other thing was uranium was a swear word. You walk down the street in Melbourne and and when I was starting my university studies and there would be protests almost every day uh, to to ban uranium. And so here we are now and uranium is a new green energy. And interest rates uh, for people that borrow to buy houses, if they fix it for four years, is 1.99%. 1.99%. So, 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 and, and this is just, it's like a short life so far that we're talking about. So yeah. everything changes and, and that's what the fund's really been set up to do in the long term. I like the way you've called it cadence as well. I think that's, um, that does give a bit of a background to that philosophy. I hadn't thought of it that way, but um, that's, that's a really good uh, way of putting it. Now, I know that you've got a new IPO coming to the market at the moment. Yeah. Um, CDO, Cadence Opportunities, is that Correct. That's right. Yeah. So, so, and that's born. What happened there was how I've been describing. You know how I've described to you. I just gave you a little snapshot of something when I was starting my studies. Uh, I, you know, I came here in 1986, 87, finished school, and I started my studies at Melbourne University. That that's kind of oh, I've just said it in a snapshot, but it's quite a long time ago now. You know, that's thirty um, something years ago. But look at that change. You know. Um, 21% interest rates, 2% interest rates, uranium is terrible, uranium is fantastic. Diesel was good back then, now diesel's terrible. <laughs> uh, and so actually inside of that, there's shorter-term trends happening all the time. And this fund came actually out of a conversation I was having. I was having coffee with a volatility trader, mm. and they were explaining to me how difficult it was to get positions on, volatility positions on, and how quickly those positions moved for you and against you, and how and difficult it was to actually replicate the true underlying VIX index. And I was right. mulling that over and I was thinking, well, actually, inside of what we do with equities, we see stocks move 20% in four weeks or 20% in six weeks, and then they end the year up 12%. For example, I'm just making up a number. Yeah, yeah. And so you see all these trends within an annual trend or within that 20 or 30 year trend I described are what we call the shorter term trends. And that is what Cadence Opportunities has been, has been set up to do. So in actual fact, when something, when you have, for example, Star Casinos going along and it's the good one and Crown's the bad one because they're doing all the naughty things, and then we discover that Star has problems as well, well, the share price collapses and then recovers quickly. And so what it does is handle shorter-term trends in the same way it scales into shorter-term trends and out of shorter-term trends. And I've got to say, you know, we set that up, and I think we were just talking that we were – we were up uh, at a conference together when I was floating Cadence Opportunities originally, 
and the market was imploding mm. due to the beginnings of COVID and all of this, and we decided to keep the fund unlisted. And so if you think about it, that we raised that money almost at the bottom of this pandemic. So it's had a lot of the benefit of going into these positions, which has ebbed and flowed and ebbed and flowed. It's really just been a very good time to do that type of investing. And as I was discussing this with the fund manager, the volatility fund manager, I said, look, for my take on this, volatility is going to be with us for a while now because we've had these interest rates fall for 30-something years and the trends are starting to change. So we're just starting to see the beginning of this and it's kind of come to be, you know, there's a lot of volatility intra-quarter, intra-month inside of that annual return. There's a lot of volatility and that's what mm. this fund has been set up to do. Now, the issue, I guess, there is you is how much capacity can we run with that strategy? Because we need to have vol- we need to have liquidity when the volatility is there, and we need to be able to move in and out of positions. So you know, it's got about thirty million in it now, and we expect that we're going to cut it off at about fifty, sixty million to see how it's going. Because right. we don't want it to get too big that we can't implement the strategy. Well, that, that's always the problem, isn't it? A lot of a lot of fund managers get too big and they actually end up handing money back to investors because they just get too unwieldy and they move the markets too much themselves by what they do. So I guess it's, it is very important to keep yeah. the fund capped at a, a certain size, which is, which is great. And it's interesting that you're kind of going back to your roots in some ways, aren't you, as that FX trader? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I, that's exactly right. And I thought to myself, you, you know, they say the, big, the really big money is made sitting on your hands, you know, yeah. the five baggers and the ten baggers. And, you know, we, we've had a, a number of those and that's and, and our longer-term numbers show that and that's great. Mm. But then within that, there's just all the short-term movement, which is really, really, as you say, more of a trading fund than a core fund. And I have to say, in the year just gone, uh, when you're talking to your fund managers, I'm sure that like they're what we call in inverted commas the deep value guys, yeah. they must be extremely frustrated. Because, because it's just been so difficult for that style of a fund to make money. And, and you know, I, I like to find value. And, and I've got to say that this year we found one or two things that are truly what I call value. And that's been really nice. But for the most part, it's been the recovery stories and the recovery in the price trend, which has made all the money. And, and the extended winning of the big uh, tech funds and the big, you know, the big valuation stocks have gone to bigger valuations. And 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 that's like a, um, it's like a nail-biting exercise. You know, they just go to a bigger valuation and a bigger valuation and a bigger valuation. And, of course, we all think at some stage that will slow down. Yeah, I, I guess it's really been the last year or so has been the, the momentum trade has really been to the fore. You don't even have to really think about it too much in terms of uh, the fundamentals. Just get on the momentum of one particular theme and make sure that you get out before that momentum changes. Yep. And, it ha- and it has been an absolute winning strategy for, for a lot of people, myself included, I have to say. Now, CDM, Cadence Capital, yep. trades at a discount. That must, you know, that must irk you somewhat. Uh, I know a lot of LICs do trade at a discount, yep. but yep. It, it, it would irk you somewhat. Well, you put in all this good work, you've done these great returns, you've done some fantastic work with the fund, and yet it trades at a discount. Do you think the same is going to happen with the CDO when it lists as well? Well, well I think to be fair with CDM, when the, what you know, when we listed that fund, we were talking about the original history of it. We had it unlisted for two and a bit years, and then we listed it. We went straight to about a 20% premium. 
Right. Uh, the performance was very good. We had a lot of retained earnings. We had a lot of franking. We paid a high yield. And so we went to a premium and we sat at a premium for about two or three three years. And then we moved to NTA. Then we went slightly to a premium again. And then the GFC came. Right. And we went to a 42% discount to NTA. <laughs> and, and we were at about a, we had about $60 million of funds under management at that stage. Yeah. And our market cap was $30 million, yeah. just about. And I remember on, and sitting on a day there saying to the board, you know, I'm new to these listed vehicles. Someone wants to sell a million shares. Can I buy them? Mm. How do I buy them? I said, well, you know, you have to get clearance from the board to buy them. You've got to put them in the – you've got to put the – sell order in the screen and the buy order in the screen to be fair you've got to give the general public a chance to um to do that and and the the, the buy and the order sell order set half a cent apart or something for about a week because <laughs> right. and then i ended up buying the million shares and i remember walking home that day and thinking i must be out of my mind i've just been listening to this um rubini rubini used to oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i remember him yeah, the world's going to end it's yeah. just a matter of time, and we're well yeah. into the end of the end of capitalism now. And I bought a million shares at forty-one <laughs> cents. And anyway, so, and then and then of course it all came good. The shares recovered. GFC ended. We made a lot of money coming out of the GFC, and we went to a premium again. So and then we really went to a premium. Like we sat at a premium of fifteen or twenty percent for years. Then I and then and this is then I had a period of underperformance, uh, which lasted about two years. Right. And, that, and in, during that stage, then we went to a discount, and then that coincided with the uh, COVID crisis. Right. The yep. end of that two-year period. So it's like we had a, 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 an onslaught of waves for three years, and and I think now people are just going, oh, and you know, then I had the moment of truth again, where I had to write an audio, talk to an audio cast like this, where mm. I said, okay, it's Thursday afternoon, the market's just closed. Our shares just closed at 34 cents. We have 42 cents of cash in the bank and a portfolio of equities. <laughs> and, and, and over that weekend, people listened to that. Yeah. And we never went back to that again. There's, you know, new people started buying the shares. And we as a board and management, we put a buyback in place and said, we are going to buy back shares here because it's in the best interest of shareholders. And if you see our annual report recently, we've bought back 20-something million shares at an average price of 76 cents, and now we're trading at about a dollar. We were at dollar ten. We just paid a three-cent divvy the other day. We're at about a 5 or 6% fully franked yield. Yeah. And um, and so we're moving back to – we're at about a 14% discount NTA. So we're moving back towards NTA. So I've seen this. This is my fourth time seeing this. Mm. And, and, I, and of course, you're right. Uh, at my AGM last year, the answer to every question was – buy our shares at a discount to NTA. And, and yeah. there are people that have written to me that did buy those shares at $0.34 cents and they've received uh, $0.09 cents of dividends since then mm. and they've tripled their money, yeah. nearly quadrupled their money actually. So, so I am a bit frustrated, but I'm not nearly as frustrated as I was when we were trading at a discount to cash in the bank and mm. the portfolio was for free. So, yeah. But I think I really do think that it's going to sort itself out over time now because we've got a lot of retained earnings and a lot of franking sitting in that vehicle now. Yeah. We've had a unlisted company in Canada that moved over to NASDAQ called the Metals Company. It listed. We've made a huge profit on that. Uh, and two-thirds of it, we've made a huge profit even on the one-third that we could sell. And mm. two-thirds of it are, are escrowed for another five months. 
I think the company has huge potential. And, um, and you know, we've probably the market's just got to work through that as well. That's what happens with the market. I'm, I'm amazed, particularly in periods like GFC and COVID, you, you go to university and the lecturers tell you about efficient market theorem. Well, it operates a lot of the time. <laughs> but what's really interesting is when it doesn't operate. And yeah. when it doesn't operate is when the animal instincts are there, which is hope, fear, and greed. And that's when it really matters. And that's when it doesn't work. And so, yeah. been, you know, I've lived through two of them, the GFC, uh, three of them, really, the GFC 9-11 and, um, and now COVID. And, and I'll probably in my investing life live through another three. Mm. And that's where it really matters. And I have to say, all three times coming out of that, we made multiples of the money that we lost on the way going into it. And, and so, you know, we, you, you come to get comfortable with it. And, and the other philosophy with all of this, as I started off saying to you, was this was a way for me to manage my money. So yeah. I put a lot of money going into this fund all the time. And when it's at a big discount like this, I buy the shares myself. You know, mm. so so I'm um, we, we 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 know that equities are not a bond; they mm. don't have bond-like returns. But so I, th- I think what will happen as we get bigger over time is the discounts and premiums. Hopefully, they're not as they're not as extreme. But gee, we've been at 20 percent premiums three times, and we've been at a forty to forty-five percent discount twice. It, it's funny, isn't it? We, we've done very well for our members. Um, playing what I call the hot tub time machine. And this came into being when we did have the COVID meltdown. There were a couple of licks, and you you guys are one of them, and I did uh, recommend uh, CDM as, as one of the ways to play the hot tub time machine, which were trading at significant discounts to their NTAs uh, and were publishing regularly. Uh, there was one, the Long Short Fund with Mark Landau, that publishes every day its NTA. Yep. And you can see the NTA going up and up and up as the market bounced. And everyone's going, oh, I don't want to buy the market because it's too expensive. And I kept saying, well, you know what, guys? You can buy the market at a 10% discount effectively or 20% or 30% by buying LSF. Yes. Because it, it was such a massive discount. And you yeah. could see the assets going up every day and no one was looking at it. I think we've made 170-odd percent for people in those. Um, same with you guys, you know, at 70 cents, uh, I was saying, you know, this this is a, an absolute gimme and uh, people should be buying them. So it, it has worked very and well. So you know the delay effect, sorry, because you've been yeah. doing it for so long, you also know the delay effect. That's the other mm. reason I gave you that answer, you know, is yeah. I know that we're making all these profits at the moment and the retained earnings, which give us more capacity to pay franking at a higher level. And that's a little bit of a delay effect. Mm. That's that's well, underway at the moment. Well, you, you talk about going through three crashes. Unfortunately, Carl, for me, I'm a little bit older than you. And this time, back in 1987, I oh, was yeah. going through. I was going. This it was this week. I was going through my first crash as an options market maker on the London Stock Exchange floor, and having the week of my very young, fresh-faced life at the time. And uh, having an absolute ball in this complete and utter chaos and this melee that was occurring. Luckily for me, I, I was young enough that I didn't actually have any money invested in the market much myself. So I didn't have, have any money. Um, I was just enjoying 
the, the thrill ride, I guess, the adrenaline of open pit trading in London. It was extraordinary. Great fun week. Well, well, I got. I remember. So, so when I said, you know, I was in Melbourne under that back then, you, there was a grading system to get into university. So we're in. We got into university. We're all there. I think we'd been at the university about a month, and Dr. Neville Norman walked in. I oh, know we must have been there longer than that. So so anyway, he, he walked in, he said, okay, you guys, you know, you, you've all got into uni. It's fantastic. We're in the lecture theatre. He said, now look to your left and look to your right. And so we've just had a stock market crash and only one in three of you is going to get a job. So it's right. either you or the person <laughs> <of> the right. <laughs> and you know, yeah. sorry, I missed another one where I wasn't in the markets, which was long-term capital markets. I was studying yeah. overseas. So, so you know, that was a real financial services one because I'd finish my, you know, I'd finish your MBA, go around looking for work. Ooh, if you hadn't secured a job at that stage, that was mm. pretty dire as well. Uh, and that and that was very much the whole efficient market theory. That was the smartest guys in the room yep. who were absolute, you know, rocket scientists that had come up with the, the perfect trading plan, the perfect fund, until it didn't work. Yep. When genius there's a book, When Genius Failed. There's a book. Yeah. It's a very good book. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember trading through that. I was at Macquarie at the time trading through that, and that was a, another interesting. Let's move on a little bit. Let's talk Deep Green, which became TMC, the metals company. There did seem, I've got to say, there did seem to be a bit of confusion surrounding that initially, I guess, uh, the in terms of uh, how much you had in it, what your profit was, how much you'd sold, all that sort of yeah. stuff. Uh, Even so much as when it was coming on. And, uh, you know, I spent actually quite a lot of time in the newsletter trying to explain uh, the the science, if that's the right word, behind Deep Green and the the polymetallic nodules on the seabed and and where they were and the, the treaties surrounding it. So we did spend quite a bit of time talking about it. But could you just sort of run through, I guess a little bit about where we are now with respect to uh, TMC. Yeah, so, and also let's just do like a very quick clarification because, because yeah. you know, um, we take 1% positions yeah. in, initially and a 1% position for the fund when we put our first position into Deep Green was $3 million. Right. We put a $3 million position into Deep Green, which was to list on the Canadian Stock Exchange. I knew Jared Barron from his previous operation i knew him from when he sold his business to telstra that's where he made his first lot of money then he promoted nautilus with which was going to be doing underwater mining in Mm. in uh, in 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 asia cook islands but Mm. the topography of what they were trying to do there was never going to work they didn't know that at the time but what they learned through that process was they met the chief scientists that they they got to know how the united nations dealt uh, dealt with underwater mining and there was a whole lot of knowledge obtained then. So when Jared said we're going to float this early stage thing and we actually want to go to polymetallic nodules off the coast of America, I was interested because I mm. knew a little bit about it. Then then that was delayed because Maersk, the international shipping company, and all sees the international mining infrastructure company put money into it and so did some sovereign funds and Glencore had put some money in and some major players put some money into it they moved their listing over to Nasdaq right. I said okay and then they came to me and said well, you do, do you want to put some money into the Nasdaq listing I said well we can only go into something if it's going to list we're not we don't go into pre-IPO that's not what we do so I said no no it's listing so then okay we'll put another one percent in so we put six million and then COVID hit <laughs> so yeah. you know the listing was delayed again so here I sat with now six million pre-IPO effective effectively which was only supposed to have ever been an IPO 
invest anyway. So then the IPO came and we had to explain to people that our 73 cent invest US had grown to $10. And to be fair, people just couldn't get their heads around. That was the first thing. They were like, okay, well, I can't get my head around. And so, and then when it actually listed, it was, you know, it, it, it's, it, it started off, I mean, in hindsight, it was it was a SPAC. It was a special purpose vehicle set up to invest in ESG projects. Mm. And so we were combining and merging with people that we didn't know. We didn't know who the investors were. Like we were all been in, in it for a while. And then there was a big sell-off in the stock. It went from $10 to I think $3 something. And now it's recovering on its way back to $4. And in between all of that, there was a portion of our stock that we could sell and a portion that we couldn't sell. And when we signed the original documentation, we thought all of our stock was founding was early stage stock and we couldn't sell any of it. And then actually when we saw the final allocations, there was a portion that we could. So we, we told right. we told the marketplace, hey, listen, we can sell a portion. I think really that's where the confusion started because the portion that we sold, the one third, gave us a two and a half times profit on the entire investment. Yeah. Not on not just not not just on that third, because we made eight times our money on that one third. So now we carry the rest of the position essentially for free. And then everyone thought it was a huge position when in actual fact we'd sold a third of it, banked the profit, and the share price had come off. So now it's about a 5.5% position in the portfolio. We're trading, as you said, at a 14% discount to NTA. So it's definitely not because of TMC, but if people are not buying it because of TMC, that's not logical. And then, of course, the funds having it, I think, is up nearly 20% from year to date. So it's having another great year. So, mm-hmm. so, um, and then I find myself in the middle of trying to explain deep sea mining and poly <laughs> and all of the stuff that I do know I've done a lot of work on, but yeah. I can't explain it very, very quickly, except to say that there's cricket balls lying on the ocean floor that need to be collected, not mined, collected, mm-hmm. crushed and put into 280 million electric vehicle batteries. And so it's way out there for people to get their heads around. I have to say that yesterday, the French government, the French president, announced that the mining of polymetallic nodules in the Clipper Zone, which is where the metals company has its four main tenements and is the most advanced in the world, it's part of France's strategy for electrification of their fossil fuel fleet. So this is not this is not pie in the sky. This is this is the the and, and you you would have read I'm sure that the demand for nickel, copper, manganese, cobalt is going to go through the roof as a result of these this electrification. And it's not just electrification of vehicles, it's electrification of everything. And actually when you look at the production requirements for these metals, they go vertical. So something's got to give. Because Julian Malnick was the uh, the gentleman behind Nautilus some years ago because I've I've had dinner with Julian a couple of times. He's a a friend of a friend and, and yeah, had uh, dinner at his place. So he's the chairman of the Sydney Mining Club for uh, for those that uh, that don't know Julian's work. Well, well um, just to say, like you know how um, parent contrast. If you're going to like, so if the Chinese said they were going to go and get nickel from the Indonesian rainforest, you're going to pull the rainforest down, get the nickel laterite, take the nickel laterite back to China, burn it in a coal fired kiln furnace. And get the nickel out. So, yeah, it's, like, how much of the world are we going to wreck? It's to not a great process. Vehicle? I know it's it's it's. I guess it's one of the strange dichotomies and the strange, I guess, um, moral problems with this whole electrification and greenification of the world. We're going to have to dig up a lot of the world to do it. Yeah. 
and it's going to be a dirty process to, to, to make it happen. So well, uh, that's what to make. I'm a I'm a big believer in the nodules. I say, you know, so and, and I mean, I would say that, and I've I've watched it unfold, and I have to say that people smarter than me, more experienced than me, the United Nations, the Mersks of the world, you know, Mersk is talking about electrifying their their global fleet. So mm. so it's there, there's much bigger forces at work than kind of our opinion so so given that um we've got tmc the metals company around five and a half percent what what are your other biggish positions at the moment so, in, so let's in talk about the irony of all of this okay. is you okay. asked me about we were talking about how stocks get cheap and expensive and they're in favor and they're out of favor so six months ago i was doing some work on energy stocks Right, and um, we had a gas play that was had made us a lot of money. I was trying to work out where gas goes long term, where oil goes long term. I'd made some money on oil, lost some money on oil. I started doing some numbers on coal, and coal had moved forty percent up from the bottom. Then I started talking to people. And I said, "Okay, now this is interesting. The, the Whitehaven is trading on eight times earnings. No, I can't talk to anyone about it. There, there, mm. there, there's so much loathing." Yeah, there was. There's so much loathing around fossil fuel. The stock, if you talk to an investor about it, it's collapsed. So everyone that's been involved in it has lost a pile of money. Anyway, so the the CADS process started turning over. 1% we added, 1% we added as it went up, 1%, 1%. All of a sudden, and I mean, it happened very quickly, the entire average position was up 55%. And coal has just been making new highs and new highs and new highs. And why is that? Because as we've decided we're not going to invest in coal, then and the world's population continues to grow. And as we come out of COVID, and as we've learned that the, um, the renewable energy sources to date have not been managed to fill the gap or what we call the transitionary time, we actually need a lot of coal, <laughs> which we don't have. And so the mm. price of coal is going so going through the roof. So actually, the very well-intended idea of not mining any more coal has led to massive coal. Sure. Mm. I, I guess that's the same in a lot of commodities as well, because a lot of our biggest mining companies, BHP being a prime example, and Rio, to a lot of extent, they, they've always, you know, in the last 10 years talked about sweating assets and capex has been down and profits have been paid out and dividends. So a lot of these commodities, they haven't got a pipeline of new projects coming on either. You know, the coppers, the nickels, you know, clearly we've got it in lithium yep. at the moment, but but it's, it's, it's prevalent throughout the commodity space, I guess, is underinvestment for whatever reason, differing reasons for different commodities, I guess. Well, that, that, that it's across the board that you're seeing mm. it. And, you know, COVID has just accentuated this. Mm. And, 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 you know, the move towards, don't get me wrong, it's begin, it'll be fantastic when we move away from fossil fuels towards really sustainable electrification. And the irony, this, I said it's the irony, it's because I'm invested in the metals company, mm. which is the future, and Whitehaven, which is the past. However, mm. well, I shouldn't use it. You know, those I've used those in inverted commas. Not, not yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That's not an. In, but right now, my shareholders are saying, "Well, you've made fifty-five percent on your Whitehaven Metals Company has come off, and we're going to have to be there long term and believe." And so, actually, when it comes to people taking money as a fully franked dividend into their super fund, they're more secure with their Whitehaven investment at the moment than they are with their <laughs> TMC investment. Ironically enough, and I mean, isn't that an irony? It, it, it is, isn't it? Um, I, I guess the market's full of these um, these ironies. But then the other thing, you know, coming back to the name Cadence, we yeah. have Unity inside the portfolio, which is a consolidation telco consolidator. Now, that's yeah, done extre- a- extremely well. 
It's been fantastic. Uh, isn't known, it? I've known Mick from when he ran his previous business. Right. I know David Taya really well from when he set up TBG. Yep. And and so if you're around long enough, <laughs> you've seen it all before. And this mm. was a repeat. And this is uh, Jackson Aldridge, one of our PMs. He took this position on. And I said, well, this is a repeat of something that happened a decade ago. <laughs> and by the way, TUA, the David Teo's new one, looks like it's going to be in Singapore, which yep. is about eight years ago at an AGM for TPG. I remember I was there. Looks mm. like it's going to be the next version of uh, moving uh, data across rooftops. He's, he's implemented it in Singapore. So these are examples of positions that have become uh, big in the portfolio and have done really, really well. And, and then you would have heard me talk about Resimac when yep. I bought my Resimac stake off um, – NAB at 50 cents about four years ago. I think that stock's around $2 now and it's paid us lots of dividends. That's run by Duncan Saville. So the, the, it's a repeat of the RHG investment we did eight years ago. We, mm. RHG Rams, home loans floated on the stock exchange at $2, collapsed to $0.07, cents, uh, recovered to $0.14, cents, and they had $0.21 cents of cash in the bank. That, that was, that was a $0.14. Cents. That was a huge money spinner. The whole runoff book of uh, of Rams was the gift that kept on giving in terms of dividend flows and special dividends and all sorts. Do of you things remember over. the special that they paid? And we got more money back. Mm. Our NTA inverted our pre tax, and we still have it a little bit. Our pre tax NTA <laughs> was lower than our post tax NTA because we got so much franking that isn't yeah. calculated in your NTA. And it, 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 it was like an accounting anomaly. We had so much franking, which was another reason why we went to a huge premium. We had a premium for four years as a result of that one. It was such a big the, – the, the dividend was about four times the size of the stub that was left after they paid it out. Yeah, I, I remember. It was extraordinary. Uh, is, is that the key to it, Carl? Is that the key to having the lick trading at a premium or at least no, no discount? Is, yes. Is that fully franking yes, so part of it and paying dividends? I mean, Jeff Wilson's obviously nailed it in that respect because, you know, it, it's consistently trades at a nice premium. You're paying $1.20 for a dollar's worth of assets and no one seems to care. Well, so it, what's interesting if you go across the funds and go, okay, here's the NTA – and here's the franking that isn't in the NTA Take the, and the retained earnings. So take the NTA, add the retained earnings and the franking. And interestingly enough, you get much closer to where the company is actually trading. Mm. So, so now I'm saying, well, you've got the benefit in cadence now, almost an anomaly where we've got the NTA at a discount, but we've got the franking and we've got the retained earnings. And when you add that all up, you get a number higher than that. Mm. So it's like it's a little bit of a standout at the moment, mm. but, you know, because I'm looking at a lot of these things. And, and I have to say that the new one that we're floating, I mean, it's going to be extreme because it's had um, nearly 100% return last year, 40% the year before. Cumulatively, the, the NTA has tripled and it's got a lot of retained earnings and it's just paid out a 6.1% fully franked or 8.8% gross yield. So it's got a yield performance and retained earnings. So, so moving on a little bit, where should we be looking at the moment for uh, in sectors or in themes or in stocks? Well, what are you looking at at the moment that's really sort of floating your boat? And so I think, wrote wow, about this is undervalued. That. Yeah, I wrote about that coal idea six months ago, and, mm. and you know that was a very out of favour idea when I started talking about it, but it's coming more into favour now. And and I have to say that we've added new hope because new hope has lagged a little bit. So I think new hope's to come. And I also think that Whitehaven 
goes a lot, lot higher from here. They've just announced that they they had um, they had one of their pit walls collapse. I don't know if you remember that was a big deal in the paper. I do. And, I do and, yes, and that caused them to stop production and their debt to blow out. Their debt blew out to one point two billion. So if we go back eight months, Whitehaven was this company with no production with one point two billion dollars of debt. Fast mm. forward to today, and they just announced at the AGM or investor presentation by year end they will have no debt. So it's all going to be paid off. That's how much money they're spitting off. And that they um, can do and, – and that the prices are going higher. You know, the, 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 they're, what they're receiving is lagging, so it's going to go higher and higher and higher. And so they're going to be a debt-free company with a, a billion-dollar reduced EV with EBITDA going up. So it's going to be incredibly cheap. Over the Sounds a bit like Fortescue. Like Fortescue in the early days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Last from the past with Fortescue, all that debt hanging over it that everyone was worried about disappeared in, in the, the merest blip of an iron ore price. Yeah, so you're looking at the energy for me is where is is where um, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. And then you know, and then it's just very unusual situations like TUA that I described to you, T U A, you know, David Teo's no thing. I think conceptually over time that's going to go really well the other one that's mm-hmm. going to go really well as a consolidation play is swoop yes yeah. that gets a lot of uh, so they raised money the day before yesterday we're a shareholder and we were adding to our position and mm-hmm. we participated in that placement you know we know the management well um and that's the people that were focused that was james spensley and of course twiggy uh forest yes is the largest shareholder yeah. So I see that as an unusual play. Here's an unusual one, Eclipse. Mm. Oh yeah. So so here's my theory on Eclipse. They mm. they 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 you know they they graze online and every right to drive it all went pear shaped with the previous management. It collapsed yep. and we started buying it just above a dollar. Uh, it's doubled and we've maintained the position. But uh, you would have seen that Smart Group has been. Mm bid for by private equity. We believe there's going to be consolidation in the space and we think that Eclipse is ripe for consolidation. The company has themselves said that they are for sale. They've been on an exercise of drastically reducing costs and making the business efficient and they've done a tremendous job doing that and they are just sitting there ripe for something to happen. So I think Eclipse is a very, very interesting position and not particularly expensive. And and then, you know, in, in kind of other unusual ones... AFG, I don't know if you've been following for the longest time now that they're trying to do the connective merger. I, I have been, only because I um, knew the founders of Mortgage Choice. So I had a bit of, and a friend of mine was a mortgage broker. So I kind of uh, lived uh, not vicariously, but I, I knew the industry through that. Yeah. So he's done, he's, um, you know, I think they're going to do quite well when the, when the deal finally consummates and they can merge the, plat- they merge the two platforms, take costs out, and then have a re- – because they have a good, good reputation. You know, mm. they, they do a good job. And mm. we, we were introduced to them really through Resimac, you know, so we started covering both of them at the same time. And, and the other one that's done well for us that I think will continue to do well is Money3. Okay, yeah. Financing business. That business is mm. transformed to what it was before. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to get the earnings growth continue, but you're going to get a PE uplift and a PE revaluation. Mm. It's not an expensive company, and it's very, very well run. And and then the other thing that I've started turning my mind to, we've made really good money on the short side recently, shorting gold. Uh, and I've started to turn my mind to the, where we started, which was interest rates going from 
17.5% to zero. Now let's talk about the journey from zero back to 17.5%. <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope they don't get that far, Carl. Well, as I said at the AGM for three years in a row now, interest yeah. rates are going to go up. And they say when, and I said in my lifetime. And then that mm. makes everyone laugh. And I said, look, I've still got some ways to go, right? I'm not that old, so it's going to happen in my lifetime. It will. And and um, and I don't think any of us are, well, that mentally prepared for it. No, I think we all think we are, but we're not really. So the shorting is going to be important. When it comes, the shorting is going to be important. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you that, actually. I, we, we are um, we're spending a lot of time, um, which is fantastic, which is great. But um, I was going to ask you that on, on shorting. It must be kind of difficult in a in a raging bull market this massive recovery we've seen in the market it's kind of difficult to put shorts out has that been affecting your performance or do you think that's been adding to it so interestingly if you look at our newsletter there's a very interesting chart there that shows our long exposure and our short exposure Mm. the dark blue is the short exposure and if you watch it you'll see oh a little bit a little bit a little bit and then and it doesn't work and then we have to cover and then it doesn't work and we have to cover and so we're just chipping away losing a bit losing a bit losing a bit then all of a sudden six months ago all of the gold stocks a2 milk appen technologies the list goes on and on of all of the things that just suddenly started really working well and and you know we made 20 30 40 percent on our money magellan Magellan Funds Management. You know, mm. it's uh, nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with Magellan Funds Management. Just got to a huge valuation. You know, right. they've had a period of underperformance, and they've had money come out of the fund, which happens with open-ended funds, and 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 then the valuation shrinks. And then what will happen is it'll overshoot and get too cheap, and then it'll be a buying opportunity again. That's just classic cadence stock in action. Something gets to a big valuation, then the PE contracts, then it turns around and goes back up again. I mean, you know, I was early on into the, um, I was being asked about this the other day about the Macquarie when it blew up in the global financial crisis. We bought it on the way out, started buying at $24, held it all the way, you know, $140 something dollars, sold it along and bought it, sold it, bought it, sold it. And now it's at $192. And what you've really seen is an investment bank, which can get to a maximum of eight to 10 times PE, transform itself into a funds management global business which can trade on 16 to 18 times PE. So they've had a PE expansion of 100% and then they've had the earnings growth. So, so, and then of course, we spoke a little bit before about liquidity. We've started to invest offshore so that we can implement the strategy easily from a liquidity point of view. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, if I was to put these in a bucket, when technology fell over, valuations fell over after the COVID collapse, all they've ever done, done since then is go up and up and up and up. And we've been a huge beneficiary of what I would describe was initially a core investment thesis and has become a technical momentum thesis, as you described, you know, in the last, yeah. particularly in the last six months. Now, now, reading between the lines, Carl, I would say that for your investment style, uh, meeting management and, and getting to know management and being comfortable with management is a critical part of the process. Would I be wrong in saying that? No, that's a critical part of it. And and as I was coming through university and then I started in funds management and I would go around asking people, you know, I'm trying, obviously I was trying, you know, I want to know how to do it, how to do the job. I want to know how to be good at it, how to excel. Mm. And then all the old timers, as I called them then in inverted commas, the old timers, oh, it's all about the people, Carl. It's all about mm. the people. And I, it used to, irritate me because I was trying to get like an edge in, you know, this is undervalued because there's cash in the bank. I'd be always looking for an unusual situation, which is kind of my style, what I'm learning. It's all yeah. the people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. At the end of the day, I think it, it's, it's so important. Unfortunately, it's not something 
that the normal retail investor can can really get access to, which I guess puts them at a slight disadvantage in some respects. Well, you, if you, so that's our job. We're supposed to go out and see them and vet them. And when we're doing a good job of that, it's like you, you don't even, you can, you start to be able to sense it. It's, you, you just sense that something's going right or something's going wrong. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that's one of our jobs, apart from all the analyzing of the balance sheets and pulling the cash flow apart and knowing that that's all there or, or looking for little traps, you know, that because if you can avoid the traps, you can make yeah. really good money. And, and then I think the other piece of the puzzle, especially for our style, maybe, is this ability to scale into positions and scale out of it. It sounds incredibly simple, but from a psychological point of view, is very, very difficult. You know, I've, I've got, we've had another person join us now. So we'll have, there'll be uh, four portfolio managers, including myself. Mm. To get people thinking the right way about adding to positions as they're going up and selling a position when it rolls over, it's not easy. It's not no. an easy thing to do. And I would say that for the general public, it's not even intuitive. No, it, it, it's not, I've got to say, I have to confess, it's not intuitive to me because I was an options trader. So as stocks went up, the delta work that you got longer. So you would always sell into the rises. Sell into it, yeah. yeah. And similarly, when things fell, you got shorter. So you'd have to be buying low and selling high. Uh, which was drummed into me from a very early age. But so we we had a discussion. I'll give you a live example of this now. So yeah. We just spoke before about uh, Resimac at 50 cents and we've had the divvies and everything. So we've probably made five times our money on it, all in. Mm. And and so now someone said to me, oh, you know, you always talk about 10 baggers and you learnt it from, um, you know, that uh, the guy, what's his name, Peter Lynch, 10 baggers. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then, oh, but, you know, really, do they really happen? I said, well, do you know how you get a 10 bagger? If you've got a five-bagger, you let it double. And we and he kind of laughed. And I said, well, hang on. We've got this five-bagger. <laughs> and if we start selling it now because we think it's fully valued or some other variation of putting our own overlay on it, we won't get a 10-bagger. You know, so, so they are out there. And, you, and, and, that, and it's very difficult to just sit on your hands doing nothing. Yes. I, I used to uh, have a... a I was ran a group of traders at Macquarie, and I had one guy, absolute genius. He did four trades a year. Yeah, yeah. And the rest of the time, he was working out which four trades to do. But I knew that when he was going to do the four trades, or the, when the trade came along, it would be big, and it would make us an absolute truckload of money. Yes. So, and you just have to know that he had done the work, and done the research, met the you know, turned every rock possible to make sure that the risk was as minimal as possible and the reward was as huge as possible. And and can I just say that one of the guys has just finished reading an interview from Victor Niederhofer, mm. who worked for George Soros, yeah. and and he was just re-quoting George Soros. And I remember reading this interview with George Soros where he said, and, you know, he's famous for break, cracking the Bank of England, the pound. Mm. Yeah. What he said was when you have the position and it's there, and you're convicted on it. You have to trade like a pig. You have to have your pig in the snout. You have to have your trough, your, your snout in the trough, and you've just got to be eating as much as you can. It's his way of kind of trying to give you like a an image of if you're going to yeah. get into that position, and then you have to hold. And, and these are not easy. Of course, they're not easy things to do. No. Otherwise, everyone could do them. 
Exactly. And, and, and I wouldn't even have to have systems in place every day running running macros on our dashboard, alerting me to the fact that potentially my biggest position, Whitehaven, has come off slightly and we may have to sell a third. Mm. So let's let's use that live now. So I told you the, the whole position's up a lot. So I'm happy. Yeah. And I think the trend, I think it's going to, could almost, it could go up another 50% from here. But then if it comes off a set amount as defined by our process and I have to sell a third, I just have to be comfortable with that. Because mm. when it turns around and goes back up, I can buy it back. That's right. You can always buy it again. The biggest risk is if I don't sell it and it goes back to where it came from, I make no money on it. A, a wise jobbing mate of mine once said to me, you can always buy stocks, but you can't always sell them. That's true. So so um, he, he was um, one, of the, one of the best traders I ever knew, certainly from a, from a jobbing point of view, which is a skill I suspect is long passed into uh, to history now carl you've been very very generous with with your time and I'm, I'm cognizant of that and i'm really grateful for it i'm just going to ask you one more question before we wrap up what's the best lesson that you've learned about investing in terms of successful investing what do you think is the best lesson you've learned i think the thing you've got to do is cut your losses and I, I, you, again this is the thing that used to irritate me when i used to read it with all the best traders i say oh come on really is that it is that all you've got Buy on the way up and sell on the way down. Yeah. It's that simple. Buy on the way up and sell mm. on the way down. However, to have to have the discipline to cut your losses, such a valuable skill. And by and it isn't always just losses. It's that idea when a company rolls over, when when you know, and now let's just say it's Whitehaven. Let's say Whitehaven, let's say Whitehaven goes up another 50% and then it rolls over and they start mining more coal in all different places and the coal price comes off again and Whitehaven's business becomes marginal again, that you don't want to be there. You want to be able to sell. So it's, I always said in, I had a little newsletter where I wrote about if you go to an auction, the house is for sale and the, it's easy. If you leave your hand up for longest, you become the person that owns it. <laughs> so, but then Try and sell it. You've got to fix the plumbing, fix the electrics, fix the, yeah. the, the paint it all, make, make it look good, mow the lawn. And there's a whole raft of things to be done to make it sell. Actually, in equities, the order to buy is, can you buy me 100000 The order to sell is, can you sell me 100000 But it's all the psychology and the difficulty going on in your brain mm. that's stopping you from selling. So the yeah. biggest lesson is cut your losses. And when yeah. something rolls over at least sell some of it because then you're in the mood. Yeah, well, I must admit, I tend to do that because I always figure Sod's law is that you'll sell it and the thing will bounce back up. So if you sell some and it does bounce, you can always sell the rest of it. And if it doesn't, then you can buy it back and you've, you've made a bit of a turn anyway. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's good to uh, good to be able to sell. Now, Carl, thank you very much. It's been an absolute delight having you on the couch, this podcast. It's been fantastic to catch up. because it's been Yeah, great to talk again. It's been a while. I mean, it's, it's made it like that. Yeah, I know, I know. And here we are. We're, we're sort of back out of it, thankfully, uh, at least in uh, New South Wales at the moment. And we've got a lot more freedom. I've even been to inner city pubs and had dinners. Oh. Things like that, which is which is a bit of a trek for me because I'm on the northern beaches. No, I right? know. I said, well, you know, Wayne's on the northern beaches with you, and he was telling me how he could go up and down the coast um, yeah. surfing. We couldn't even get to the beach because I'm in town, and yeah. the beach is more than five kilometres away. Yeah, well, we have the biggest LGA in the world in, in Sydney, I think, because we could go from Palm Beach to Manly. And everywhere in between, it yeah. was it, it was crazy. Um, well, what a, so, that's a good life. 
living so the that dream. Was, <laughs> living the dream, exactly, exactly. Carl, thank you so much again. It's been an absolute delight to catch up. It's been fantastic to pick your brains. We could do this for another two hours, I suspect, and maybe we'll have to do it again. Um, maybe we'll get together after uh, CDO has been listed for a little while and you can uh, you can have a chat to me about that. That would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to do that. All right, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make a date. But thank you very much, mate. I thoroughly appreciate it. Great, Henry. Good to talk. Thanks for your time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Cheers.